Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. For me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back at Fernando Alonso's Indianapolis 500 odyssey and ask if Ferrari stitched Kimi Raikkonen up. Welcome to the Autosport Podcast. We've got a lot to get through this week, what with the Monaco Grand Prix and the Indianapolis 500. So without further ado, let's introduce you to today's panel. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosport, and I've got three guests today, starting with Lawrence Barreto, one of our F1 correspondents. Lawrence, obviously you were in Monaco. I guess Alonso was a big talking point there. Definitely. I think uh, people were talking about Alonso, McLaren and Indy more than they were talking about the Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, There was a massive buzz in the paddock that everyone was looking forward to Sunday night Monaco Grand Prix being done in so they can watch Alonso Indy. Also joining me is Glenn Freeman editor of autosport.com he was caught in the middle he was at base doing both the Monaco Grand Prix and Indy work from the from the news desk so uh, so what did you make of it all Glenn? Good day? Busy day long day my shift was meant to finish uh, around the time that Indy started but I wasn't going anywhere, was I? Let's face it. Couldn't take your eyes off Indy. So yeah, it was a long day. And I think I had to eventually take my missus to the pub when Alonso's engine blew up because she'd been waiting for a lift for a little while. I was going to say, was she particularly disappointed? I'm not watching this anymore. Yeah, she had to drown her sorrows. (laughs) 
Also joined by Damien Smith. Now he, like myself, was at Indianapolis for the 500. That was your first time as well, wasn't it? Yeah, we were a pair of rookies, weren't we? Exactly, exactly. Who was Rookie of the Year, though? Uh, oh, you were, obviously. <laughs> I don't know. I think there may have to be an angry debate about that, but <laughs> maybe we'll come back to that uh, later with relation to certain Fernando Alonso. Well, let's start off in America for no better reason than I was there, and that's what I want to talk about first. So Indy 500, it was all about Fernando Alonso. Qualified fifth, he was running, just taken seventh on his way back through after being shuffled a bit back uh, in the order on strategy when his Honda engine let go at the end of 179 laps. Uh, obviously a huge story, so let's let's start off with Damien. What did you make of the interest in Alonso and what Alonso brought to a race that's already pretty great? It just seemed to elevate it to a whole new level. Yeah, what I loved about it was the enthusiasm of basically everyone you spoke to and the fans. Well, I heard the, the phrase Alonso mania. Maybe mania is a bit too strong, but there was certainly, you know, huge interest on on the uh, the Saturday morning. They have this huge autograph session, and all the drivers are lined up in grid order, pretty much in, on tables. And the queue for Alonso was was stretching way back. Obviously, when he retired in the race, he had that standing ovation that um, all those thousands of people in the grandstands, all, almost to a man, stood and and applauded him. The nice thing was he was smiling as well. Through throughout the week that I was there, and you were there for two weeks, he was in such a good mood, and he really seemed to to get it, which was which was great to see a European with his background and his experience go over there and uh, and and just be sort of embraced and and embraced back. You know, he, it was a, a lovely occasion. Yeah, he certainly seemed to buy into the whole experience. I think a few little bits baffled him somewhat. I know. I think it was on the Tuesday morning, the second day of practice. I was down uh, on pit road by the by the Andretti pit he was in, and he was had his chat with his engineers and then he pulled on the balaclava and then he got accosted by a few fans and I suppose for a photograph and a few autographs and uh, he looks a little bit bemused by that and I think he was expecting it everywhere but kind of just before you get in the car maybe a little bit too far but one of the one of the stewards in the in the pit road was absolutely delighted he got his uh, Indianapolis cap signed and very excitedly showed it to me so I guess we can say the Alonso factor was was very very positive and it, it certainly seemed to create a lot of interest in the race outside the US as well I mean Lawrence you talked about Alonso being a big talking point. But what was the general feeling? Was it was it interest? Was it what on earth is this guy doing skipping Monaco to do that? Was it a fascination in seeing him succeed, a fascination in seeing maybe him fail? I think there's a little bit of everything you've just mentioned there. I think in in the most everyone wanted him to succeed. I think it was a very cool thing to have him over there. Fernando wouldn't have been that happy being in, in Monaco. He was clearly happy being over in Indy. And I just remember when we were going into the paddock and the first person I saw and the first thing we talked about was Alonso. We weren't talking about, oh, we're in Monaco, you know, the showpiece event on the F1 calendar. And that kind of carried through, through the whole weekend. So I think it was interesting because it was just a different thing. People weren't really expecting it to happen. And I know that when we were watching the race in the media centre, because um, at that time of night, unfortunately, we're still working. Yeah, I guess the race started, what, two or three hours after... The race had finished? Yeah, it took about two hours, maybe. Okay, so kind of perfect time for you've done your running around in the paddock, getting quotes and speaking to people and finding out what's been going on and then sat there tapping away for a few hours. Exactly. I think i just finished interviewing Hasegawa Sun and we managed to get into the McLaren motorhome to at least watch the start before I had to go back and do some work. But um, I remember when... We'll, we'll be docking that <laughs> little bit of time you're watching the start of the Fifty Five Hundred from your wages, don't worry. Oh, well, I thought I was absorbing the atmosphere so I could talk about it on this podcast, so surely that's part of my job. You were, but you were doing <laughs> oh, it on your own comeback. time. <laughs> <laughs> 
But the the moment that stood out for me was when we were watching it in the media centre was there was a, a massive groan when Fernando Alonso's engine let go. And I think that kind of probably tells you what everyone was hoping for. They were hoping for a, a mega finish after how well he'd done up until that point. So I think over overwhelmingly people were in support of him in the F1 paddock. Well, and certainly looking at Alonso's race specifically, it was a really brilliantly executed race, I felt. He slipped back a few places off the start, played his way in, worked his way up and obviously took the lead on lap 37 during the first stint from from Rossi. He really seemed to just be comfortable, know what he was doing. He just looked the part. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about his race, that, that thing that he slipped back at the start, um, he realised that the start was a dangerous time for him, that you know it could all go horribly wrong and, and be all over very quickly. So he just took his time and worked his way through um, calmly and with such a surety. I mean, turn one was the, the favourite passing place. And he was doing it on the inside, he was doing it on the outside. Um, he had practiced all the lines in the simulator before each practice session. He'd, he'd done all his research, basically. And he looked like a classic oval driver because he was coming out of turn four, drafting up behind his, his next victim and doing all the work on the straight so that you know, there, was, there was minimal risk going into the bends. Um, and when he did go around the outside, you know, again, he just looked comfortable. He didn't look like he was on, on the edge. He showed up some of the other drivers there. Yeah, that's what I liked. There was not one moment where you thought, oh, he shouldn't have done that or, oh, he's got away with that one. He he back. It wasn't so much what he did that was really impressive. It was the things he didn't do. He never had those moves where he had to get out of it. He never got himself too high in the marbles where he was hanging on to the car and just had to massively get out of the throttle. Some of the moves he did pull around the outside of turn one in particular, you know, he, he knew exactly how much road he had to work with before the grip would run out. And yeah, that was just, they had all the hallmarks of an accomplished oval racer. And this was his oval racing debut. It was, it was remarkable. I think it was good to see the way he played the race. He said a few days before that he wasn't going to be playing it too safe at the start, not deliberately anyway. And I think what you were saying, Damien, he basically got mugged a little bit by the third row. Yeah, he got row. jumped, didn't he? Well, really? And the third row was Canaan, Andretti and Power. So you got three drivers with a lot of experience there. But it was the fact that he just said, right, okay, well, they've gone past. That's not really a problem. I'll, I'll just sort of settle down. So I think it wasn't so much a it wasn't so much a deliberate thing, but it was just a look. It doesn't matter if I'm third, sixth, twelfth in the first phase of the race. I can just see see how it goes. Well, he was in the right car, obviously, because Andretti were the top team this year at uh, at Indy, and um, and whatever we say about the Honda engine, the fact it failed him, it was also extremely powerful. So he had the right setup, he had the right engine, but then he started to use them. One of the things I said to Gilles de Ferran on the grid, who was mentoring him the weekend. Uh, you know, Deferrin, like everyone, was, was blown away by how impressive he was. But I said, but you're not surprised, are you? And he said, no, I'm not surprised because this is Fernando Alonso. This is kind of what we expected. But he did say that um, his effect on the team was just to lift everyone in the crew just that little bit more by having Fernando there. And the fact that Fernando was taking it so seriously and working so hard at it, I gave him a lift again. It has a little bit of that Mansell impact. I know, Glenn, when it was first announced, you wrote a piece on autosport.com that ran in the plus section, the subscriber area, about how this is modern IndyCar's Mansell moment, if you like, when Mansell went over there in 93. It brought a lot of international attention. It played a big part in the kind of international explosion of uh, of IndyCar racing in that time. Now, I'm not necessarily saying there's going to be an explosion mirroring that of, of Kart in the 90s, but it does seem to have elevated the Indy 500, certainly, and I guess to a lesser extent IndyCar into a slightly higher strata in people's consciousness. Yeah, the tricky thing is, obviously, Mansell did the full season as the reigning Formula 1 world champion, so people could follow the whole series the variety of tracks the variety of racing and I think you're right there was a huge boom after that IndyCar racing was much stronger back then than it is now anyway Um, but yeah watching the race on Sunday it 
I was quite young, but I did watch the 93 Indy 500 as a huge Mansell fan at the time. And there were moments where I just thought this is exactly like watching Nigel Mansell when he was here because he was in the mix. He didn't qualify as well as Alonso did, but you know, he was, he was a, a force to be reckoned with in that race and was in the hunt until getting mugged on that late restart. And so all of that felt very, very similar. And I just think that's brilliant, not just for IndyCar racing, that's brilliant for motorsport to have an F1 world champion go there. And as you guys have told us, you were there. Take it so seriously as well. That he was not on holiday. And I just think that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, we had breakfast with Bobby Rahal on Friday morning and um, he, he compared it to the Mansell, Mansell thing. One of the days they have a, a memorabilia show, which is basically a, a huge jumble sale of, of all sorts of goodies, you know, models, pictures, um, old programs, all sorts of things. Not, really. not quite enough 1 to 43 scale models of really obscure 90s IndyCar <laughs> not enough for entries anyway. for me. They're all a bit too mid-grid at worst. I, I wanted the really obscure ones, the Hubert Strombergers. That's one of the ones I wanted. But we did notice um, there was quite a lot of Mansell memorabilia, even now. Um, you know, he his impact on Indy all these years later still resonates. And I just had the feeling that Alonso will have a similar impact, that if he never, never goes back, people will remember this year uh, as something special. And you'll see models of that, that orange McLaren for, for years to come. Before we get onto the race in a little bit more detail, Lawrence, do you get a sense from some of the F1 drivers, I'm sure there were plenty of questions being chucked about in the build-up to Monaco about what Alonso was doing. Do you get the impression that some of the F1 regulars are taking the Indy 500 and IndyCar a bit more seriously? Alexander Rossi did do a few races for Manor before moving over there. I guess the last one before that of an established F1 driver was Rubens Barrichello, who did a season. Do you think it's changed people's perceptions in any way? Are their drivers desperate to get in an IndyCar and show they can do the same as Alonso did? If it has, then when they were asked about it, they didn't say so. That's not to say that they don't want to do it in the future. But I think a lot of them, or I would say the majority of them, are so fully focused on F1 at the moment. They probably don't have the luxury, obviously, that Alonso does for that mindset, that it's not really an option for them. In terms of what they think about Indy, and I think they are impressed with what Fernando's done. And I think there is a level of importance there. But in terms of actually doing it right now, I don't think there's any scope for that. I think uh, Jensen Button's radio message to Fernando before the race, I mean, that was a brilliant exchange all the way from Indianapolis to Monaco. But Jensen kept saying over the weekend, and he said it to Fernando on the radio, stay safe, and I hope you stay safe. I hope he stays safe. I still think there's a lot of drivers, and Scott Dixon's accident that we'll come on to later won't have helped with this. There's a lot of F1 drivers who still think oval racing, the Indy 500 in particular, is probably too dangerous. Well, of course, Sebastian Bourdais on the first day of qualifying, another XF1 driver, had a little wiggle coming through turn two, corrected and it fired him into the wall, multiple fractures to the pelvis and a broken right hip. He had surgery in the evening and he's going to be out probably for most of the season. He's trying to get back for the season finale in, in Sonoma, but that's a reminder that this can happen. But it's always interesting with F1 drivers. I've generally found, and Rubens is a classic example of this, I remember Rubens saying repeatedly, no, I'll never go I'll never go onto the ovals. I've promised my wife I'll never do that. And then, of course, sure enough, Rubens drops out of F1 and suddenly he's in IndyCar. And I remember when he was asked about that, he said, well, yeah, but it wasn't really a realistic option at that stage. I was doing Formula One. So it's one of those easy things to say, well, I'm not interested. Yeah, we're not keen. And then suddenly when you're frozen out of F1, it's like, right, let's go and do IndyCar. So that's the interesting thing, whether it displaces WEC, which has perhaps become the focus of choice with three manufacturers as it was in it but now only two maybe people will be thinking well actually perhaps IndyCar is the way to go and it could even work from a, the perspective of sponsors and backers given the interest in Alonso you can say to a sponsor well look at the interest Alonso generated so if we can put a decent F1 driver in look at the return we can give you for an IndyCar season which obviously will make all the difference it's still expensive to do IndyCar racing and it, it's not been in great circumstances commercially recently so that's going to be the key is there the money there 
for there to be a, a paid drive. I think there's a lot of ignorance in Formula One about Indy, and not mali- not necessarily malicious ignorance. It's just the fact that there's a lack of knowledge about it. I think Lewis Hamilton made some derogatory comments about quality of Indy if, if someone like Fernando can just go over there and qualify fifth and do what he did, which was really a bit disrespectful to to um, the IndyCar scene. And you know, how much does Lewis Hamilton really know about it? I think that the danger of Indianapolis is real and there's no there's no getting around that and if drivers are uh, are fearful of going over there you can't really blame them and my first experience of it on friday morning watching the um, the last practice session on, on what they call carb day when i sat in the turn one grandstand to get an, an eye view of the, of the circuit and it's so narrow it really strikes you how narrow it is and and just how fast it is when you when you, you're not used to watching oval racing week racing week in week out you have to recalibrate almost what you're seeing they're not breaking and turning in they're just turning in you know and it's it is incredible you know Bourdais extremely experienced on the ovals and it still happens to him it you know it can happen to the the, the, the best of them but if they go over there they get bitten by the bug. That is a wonderful, wonderful race and a, and a wonderful scene. And Sato, in his winners' press conference, was asked about it. And you know, he didn't grow up wanting to be an Indy driver. He grew up wanting to be a Formula One driver, but circumstances took him to Indy because his F1 career didn't work out. That's the that's the reality. But he's he's mighty glad that it did take him across the the Atlantic because he's had a great, interesting career since since F1, and now he's won the big one finally. Ed, before we move away from Alonso, you've been to a few Grand Prix this year. You went to some testing. You've seen Fernando Alonso probably at his best and at his worst now. How different was he at Indy compared to what we've seen in F1? You know, the whole reason in McLaren's mind for letting him do this was to try and sort of refresh the way he feels about his career, his life, being with McLaren because they're trying to get him to sign a new contract. Do you feel this had an effect in that way or is it purely he went there, he had a good race, he was competitive again, he enjoyed that, we enjoyed that. Now we're back to the slog of trying to haul a, an underpowered McLaren around for the rest of the season. He certainly enjoyed it. He was certainly energised by the whole thing. There were far fewer little broadsides that he likes to throw into what he says. At, well, you, so. had his, you had his radio for the whole fortnight yeah, as well, yeah. didn't you? So there no, was he, no, he, he no. wasn't talking about GP2 engines and no, that no, sort no. of thing. No, he was very quiet on the, uh, the radio for the most part, actually, including in terms of the amount of spotter communication he had. He, he was quite minimalist in terms of what he needed, which I guess is no surprise because it's it's easy to have information overload. And actually, I spoke to Rick Mears on this podcast not so long ago, and he said, actually, with spotters, you probably want a bit less information because sometimes you just have too much. You know, if you're spinning down the track, we'll obviously get on the brake. You know, you, you can sort that out yourself without someone on the grandstand telling you to do it. The question is whether it's a, a long-term effect because I think Alonso was asked about this on the, the media day a few days before the race, and he said, yeah, it's going to be back to back to normal in Canada and it's not going to be easy. I don't necessarily think we're going to see a dramatically different Fernando Alonso. I think it's going to be like his day job's a bit rubbish. He's been on a most fantastic holiday and then he's come back. And so I guess that's something a lot of people can relate to. So do you feel better after you've come back from the world's best holiday or better when it was before? You know, that that's the real a question. Really good point. It remains to be seen how much long-term benefit McLaren gets from this. It depends. You know, you never know what the options are. He says his priority is a world championship winning car next year. McLaren wants to keep him, so you know I asked Zach Brown about this after the race. There's no, there's no way you can give him a championship-winning car next year, is there? Realistically, for all the goodwill and good intentions, and Zach sort of said, "Well, yeah, we've got to show them that we can make a big step and then get into a championship-winning scenario." So, so who knows what that could mean? Whether it's a different F1 team, Alonso might go to, whether he stays at McLaren, or whether maybe with talk about McLaren continuing in IndyCar, could they say to him, "Well, why don't you do an IndyCar season?" 
under the McLaren banner. We'll I'd sort, love that. We'll sort ourselves out in Europe. You can come and see what we're like in 2019, it would be, and come back in and, and try and win the championship. Alonso said he isn't especially interested in doing an IndyCar season, but he might like another crack at the 500 and doing a full year in IndyCar. It's not such an intensive schedule. It's, it's quite a condensed calendar. So that, that might appeal to him. I'm sure it'll have been tossed around in some of the discussions. I don't think it's going to transform anything for Alonso. He's had a great time. He's added to his legend, but that's done and dusted now. And it's off to Canada to see, well, can we squeeze into Q3 and try and nick a point? See, well, Zach, Zach Brown was furious after the race. and We, we interviewed him um, only a few minutes after the, the race finished, and he was clearly very emotional. What he said was very critical of Honda. You know, uh, it was shocking, but not a surprise that uh, Alonso had the failure. Yeah, it says it all. You know, I did wonder at the time, is this just the emotion of the the moment talking or, or is the patience with Honda now stretched so thin that this could actually have some influence on, on the future of that partnership it's strained a breaking point I think yeah it's really hard to see where they go from here and where Alonso goes from here because you think you know he wants to go back to Indy he said that he wants to go back but how and with whom if there could be a McLaren Andretti car next season and Alonso could go there still get a good pay deal from McLaren rather than a what you might call a normal IndyCar deal, may, maybe that could work. One last thing, there's a, a, a great clip of him on uh, on the internet uh, this morning of um, the, the banquet dinner, um, and he's given a speech, completely charmed the room with the speech and was very gracious, uh, very gracious about Michael Andretti and about the whole experience of Indy. Uh, and again, it's the side of Alonso that we never see in Formula One, and he's smiling and he's happy, and he, he, you know, he took so much from this experience, it's hard to believe that he'll never go back, to be honest, uh, having, having seen that. I'm sure it'll be quite easy for it to happen because even if it's not a McLaren-related thing, a sponsor could get a lot out of an investment in Alonso doing Indy or whatever. We should also talk a bit about the race specifically. It wasn't just about Fernando Alonso. As we've already mentioned, Takuma Sato took a really popular victory. I think there wasn't anybody who was unhappy to see Takuma win. He was one of the other Andretti Autosport drivers. Obviously, Andretti Autosport were the team to beat. Sato won, obviously. Alonso had spells in the lead. Alexander Rossi was well up there and he was among the favourites for, for victory, but he had a refueling problem that dropped him down the order and he came back through to seventh. Ryan Hunter-Ray as well was very, very strong. He had a Honda engine failure while very strongly in contention for victory. So the Andretti cars were were really strong. Obviously, the big talking point in the first part of the race was Scott Dixon, pole sitter. One minute he's he's going along in the second stint. He'd been shuffled back a little bit because he got a bit loose in the first stint. Jay Howard crashed, hit the wall, came back across Dixon's path he'd gone low and then we had this uh, this horrendous accident I'm sure everyone's seen it with him through the air hitting the inside fence I guess that was a, a reminder of how dangerous Indy can be and also how safe the cars now are yeah it's a huge testament to the new car that came in in 2012 so that car replaced the last race for the previous car was what will forever be known as the Dan Weldon race unfortunately where we had cars flying through the air that day and unfortunately Weldon wasn't as lucky as Dixon was, but so much work had gone into the car concept that was due in for the next season by then already, and it's accidents like the one we saw on Sunday for Dixon that prove how fantastic the research that IndyCar have done and Delara into making these cars safe, that they've done such a great job. Someone pointed out to me there's still quite a lot of fortune in terms of where Dixon's head was when the car made contact uh, with the barrier sort of in midair. They haven't yet really done anything in that area in terms of cockpit protection, which is still a huge talking point in F1. But yeah, it's amazing to see an accident like that at that speed and the driver walks away unaided. You know, that's that's such a huge, huge relief. 
you couldn't really tell how fast that accident is about to be until the car takes off because the cameras are doing quite a good job of tracking it about to happen and you're thinking well am i watching this one in slow motion is this a replay and then when it launches you know the speed is absolutely terrifying the other thing about that accident um, was Helio Castro Neves' uh, near miss, which he basically drove underneath the flying Dixon. You know, he, he ran over the grass, bump, bumped along, and, and did did actually sustain some some car damage and um, had a had a broken uh, wing wing flap at the, the rear of the car for the remainder of the race. He drove an incredible race because the, he had another near miss with another accident where he was almost taken out. Survived those two. He had a um, a penalty for a supposed jump start at a green a green flag. And yet he was—he almost won. He was uh, Sato had to pass him for the win, and then Sato had him for the last five laps, very close to him. Um, and it was a, it was a deeply impressive performance. And he was going for his record fourth win, of course. What impressed me about Sato, I think, was those final five laps. That once he'd got that lead back, there's a reputation that he has that he's going to make a mistake, that he's going to um, crumble under pressure, and he didn't. He absolutely nailed it. Um, for those final five laps, kept it clean and was a deserved, deserved winner of the race. Well, Sato has already blown an Indy 500 victory shot in the past when he tried to pass Dario Franchitti in 2012 into the On first the last corner, lap. and he, he spun into the wall, just avoided uh, collecting Dario. So, I mean, Sato as well, he had been shuffled back a bit by a, a fumbled wheel nut in a pit stop, but he was he was great all day, he was quick all month raced well, passed people, defended well. So this was a really, really good drive from Sato. And I would say, had Alonso made it to the end of the race, done the last 21 laps, he was just making his move up the order when the engine failure happened. And I'm sure Alonso would have been up there in that fight. But Sato versus Alonso, if it had been that, there's every chance Sato would have won that battle as well. And it was interesting, actually, the Castroneves comparison. There was the point where I think eight cars were out of sequence compared to the the kind of the normal lead pack that Alonso was in with people like Canaan, etc. And so that's why you had Alonso shuffle down the order with a few other people. And there was a restart when Castroneves surged up to fifth and when Alonso got a little bit bogged down in the bottom half of the top 12. And I thought that was kind of one point where you saw a little bit of the experience coming to coming into play and in fact it was later in that stint that Sato got Alonso and Canaan on the same lap so you, that's where we saw the eventual two winners making a bit of progress at a point when Alonso was not quite doing so he did say he was looking after his tyres and he had just started going forward when he retired but maybe that was the one area where we saw the advantage as the race was winding down of the experience and the knowing how to make those passes. The tyre element is valid. We've seen quite a few exciting finishes at Indy in recent years. I can think back to, I think it was the Willpower Montoya battle in 15. Oh, that was brilliant, yeah. Which was fantastic. So they kept swapping places, but then Power got shuffled back and by then his tyres had gone, whereas Montoya had kept his alive a little bit more. So that's that's certainly valid. It'd been really interesting to see Alonso have to get involved when the oval racers were ramping it up because that was the thing Alonso had been warned about the whole time was whatever happens for the first 150, 180 laps, when it really matters at the end is when these guys are going to start getting their elbows out. And really to have Castro Nevis and Penske in the mix at the end when they weren't really competitive all race as a team, but that was a team being canny and a very, very good Indianapolis specialist being canny. And he's right there at the end. Sato was fantastic to deal with that pressure and to race him. You know, we talk about uh, Takuma's reputation. I think he grazed the wall twice on his qualifying run, which felt a bit more like the Sato cliche. But yeah, he didn't put a wheel wrong in the final laps of the race. And talking about Honda, if Fernando Alonso's Honda engine blows up, the only way Honda can save face after that 
is for Takuma Sato to win the race for them. So, you know, in Japan, I'm sure people aren't that bothered that Alonso blew up because they got a Sato win instead. Uh, it's great for Sato and great, and great for Honda. One thing I wanted to ask you, Lawrence, was there a lot of goodwill towards Sato? Obviously, he was in Formula One for a long time. People knowing there were people watching the end of the race, happy to see him win or... When Alonso part, did everyone get a bit bored of it? No, people stuck with it once Alonso was out of the race. Um, I think Sato, uh, Sato's win was, it was a good feeling. I think, and he's got that infectious smile, hasn't he? So he was so excitable when uh, when you saw him at the end. So I think, yeah, I think it was a, it was a popular win if it wasn't Fernando win. Well, we should also mention we, we could have had a green cover on Autosport this week because Max Chilton, he led the most laps, albeit yeah, 50 laps of the race. Some of them under yellow flags, obviously. But, you know, he was very hard to pass um, uh, and not through any, any uh, blocking, just, just the fact that his Ganassi car was very quick. He was very committed into turn one. And um, I was you know, really impressed with his drive. It was noticeable, actually, saying that when, when it gets serious at the end, he did drop back to fourth and um, wasn't really a contender in those final laps. But up to that point, um, what a great performance for him. He was decent defensively and showed he'd learned a few tricks there. He didn't really have anything once he'd been passed. But yeah, it's a, it's a good drive from uh, from Chilton. He got into that position through being out sequence as well. He was one of that group of cars, but then he pressed home that advantage. And I imagine if you'd said to him before the race, you'd be fourth, he'd have thought, yeah. But at the same time, he was leading at he the final restart. He looked gutted afterwards though, didn't he? If, if you're leading at the final restart of the Indy 500 and you finish fourth, you probably do think, well, is there a bit more I could have done? But... Like I said, once he was passed, he wasn't able to go back past. And that was what we saw Sato able to do. Castroneves got him, and then Sato got back past again. And that's what you need to be able to do in those closing stages. Uh, the one other driver, actually, we should mention, you know, mention there could have been a, a green cover for Chilton. Obviously, Ed Jones, who simultaneously British and uh, and from the, the UAE, he finished third. Um, really strong throughout the month. He was in the, the kind of lead Dale Coyne racing car after Bordet's crash and that was a you know good drive he was a little bit unfortunate well and it was also partly his error he clipped the back of Zach Veach's Foyt entry and punched a little bit of a hole in the front of his car so he was carrying a bit more drag towards the end without that he reckoned he'd have been a contender for victory and he finished third which great effort for Matt Jones he's really making a good name for himself in the US after I guess you'd say a, a patchy European career where he had his moments but didn't really uh, capture anyone's imagination. Obviously, the interesting debate was after when they had the Rookie of the Year awarded, which is not simply awarded to the highest-placed rookie. It's a vote, and uh, the Rookie of the Year award went to Fernando Alonso rather than to Ed Jones. And obviously, various people saying, well, come on, Ed Jones was third. Why didn't he get it? I'll just briefly, before we discuss that, say that the selection criteria are listed as the driver's skill, sportsmanship, accessibility and conduct during the month, and finishing position. So finishing position is 25% of the equation. So what do we think there? Should it have been Jones rather than Alonso who got Rookie of the Year? I think given that we've we struggled to get off the subject of Alonso and, and the, the, the dominance of the man over the over the month of May um, and the fact that the race performance was all there apart from the fact his, his engine failed with you know just over 20 laps to go. Which we should have nothing to do with him. It was a known problem with the Honda engines and yeah. it just, just went. I would I would have voted for Alonso as well. It's a bit hard on, on Ed Jones because to finish third on your first Indy is a magnificent achievement. Um, but I would give it to Alonso. Ed Jones is probably getting spoken about more for having not been voted than if Alonso wasn't there and Jones had got it. It would have been, it would have been a footnote. Um, whereas actually it's drawn quite a lot of attention to the fact that you finished third. Uh, you said one of the criteria was accessibility or something like yeah. that. I, I question whether anyone was trying... Uh, was testing Ed Jones's accessibility through the fortnight because um, most of the attention was on Alonso. Um, but no, Jones drove well, but he did have a very good car. You know, mm. the, the Bourdais was incredibly fast 
up until the moment of impact with the wall. So the coin cards are really good. So yeah, he should have, he should have been in the mix and he was. I think the key is, you know, he's got some oval racing experience. He was Indy Lights champion last year, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So he's got a bit more oval experience than Alonso. And Alonso, yeah, was a real factor throughout the race. Led a lot of laps uh, in comparison. So the good thing is that Alonso put in a performance that warranted it being a discussion. It's not like Alonso ran around in 15th, didn't really show anything and just got voted because he's Fernando Alonso. He put in a performance that you could say was worth winning that award. Um, so on, on and off the track. Yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think that's what it's about. This this was the Alonso Indy 500, really, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's what people are going to be talking about for a long time. That and Sato's winner are probably the two things people remember it for. But Ed Jones, I don't think it really matters that he didn't win Rookie of the Year. Ultimately, he's, he's got a third place. He's making a good name for himself in IndyCar. He's got leadership of, of coin, presumably, for the for the upcoming races. So it's good for his career. He's, he's really making a name for himself. The big question I've got, Ed, is if he had won, Jones, um, would it have been a green cover or would it have been half a green cover? What what would you have done? Well, what's what's the UAE flag? It's kind of green and red and white and black, isn't it? So that that would have been a challenge uh, graphically. I don't know. I mean, he do, he is basically British, so yeah, it would be an interesting debate, I guess. Uh, but maybe if he keeps up that kind of form at Indy, we may well have to work out what we do, whether we do a, a green cover or or some kind of version for him in the future, because I think he's going to be a pretty big contender in, in future and he's certainly a much bigger name now over there than he ever was in Europe so that, that's that's great for him and just running down some of the other finishes Tony Kanaan had a strong run throughout but never quite got into the mix in fifth place Juan Pablo Montoya was pretty anonymous actually came through to six at the end but that was more through just hanging around uh, Marco Andretti eighth obviously Ed Carpenter led was down in 11th after hitting Mikhail Aleutian J.R. Hildebrand who crashed out at the last corner while leading in 2011 was a factor, but he got shuffled back down to 16th after he got done for an illegal restart. So there's loads of drivers who are up there in that race. I just uh, wanted to go back to Alexander Rossi, actually. He obviously won it last year with what will be remembered as a fuel-saving strategy victory. But I know he was very keen this year to put in a performance that showed he deserved to be an Indy 500 winner. and He deserved to have his face on that trophy for a reason other than fuel economy. And I felt his performance throughout the whole fortnight and especially during the race was absolutely superb and he's validated that 2016 win really. Yeah, he was delighted to make the fast nine, which is the the fastest nine drivers from Saturday qualifying go through to the Sunday shootout to decide the front three rows of the grid. And he missed it the previous year. It's great to have done it this year and showed he had the pace and he was a contender all throughout and without that refueling problem. Every chance he'd have won the thing and he'd been a, a two-time Indy 500 winner. So I think that's good for Rossi another guy who's done a little bit of Formula 1, uh, to just say, look, I'm going to be a contender here. I can be the American champion that you all like, which is obviously a little bit tricky for him because he didn't come up through the US. He's kind of a European driver. It's not so much a driver going home to what he knows. He's basically just the same as an Alonso. He's a European driver going over there. So no, I think it's a great performance from Alexander Rossi. He got a great welcome from the crowd on Saturday because Saturday's an odd day. They're, they have no running on track at all, but they have lots of um, they have the big parade through the city and in the in the morning there was a um they have a driver briefing which is public basically and they they build a small grandstand in the pit lane facing the infield grandstand and the drivers sit in that small grandstand facing the crowd and they're in, individually introduced and as the reigning champion of Indy Rossi had to make a a speech and he he, he did get a, a really good reaction there was a, f- a few um 
uh, ironic cheers for calling for a speech. I think they they think he's not exactly going to be the most eloquent speaker, but he was he was actually uh, um, seems to be quite popular. I thought. Yeah, he's hopefully growing into that role. There needs to be a an American open wheel hero. There hasn't really been anyone close to that, I guess, since Sam Hornish Jr. Really, and even then, he never reached the height of the previous generations. You know, your Alanza Juniors, your well, Michael, he left. Your Michael Andretti, your Mario he left Andretti, at the height well. of his powers, didn't he? Well, he that's very NASCAR true. Yeah. Very, very true. And there's some hope that Joseph Newgarden, the Penske driver, might emerge as that. Ryan Hunter Ray's won the championship in the 500, but hasn't quite captured the imagination. There's Rossi as well, so maybe that is what Rossi could be. He might just need to become a little bit more American, shall we, shall we say, and uh, show that he's really committed to American things. Well, we've talked a lot about Indianapolis, so let's actually get on to uh, Formula One as well. This is where Lawrence comes into his own, as he was our, our man in Monaco. Obviously, one story at Monaco, really. It was the way the strategy played out between Kimi Raikkonen and Sebastian Vettel. Raikkonen's first pole since the French Grand Prix back in 2008, led the first chunk of the race, stopped first, Vettel was able to jump him by running a bit longer using the overcut, which is not normally the, the better way of doing it. So some say it was a stitch up by Ferrari, deliberate, to swap the drivers around and make their championship shot win. Some say it was just the way the race played out. So where do you stand on that and how did it all happen? Well, I think to start with, there was a real uh, good feeling after qualifying um, when Kimi got that pole. Uh, I think it was, uh, I think there were a lot of people who just thought it's a really nice thing for Formula One that Kimi's back on top. He's had a run of good qualifying, so it wasn't a complete surprise. So it kind of boosted everyone going into Sunday's race because often Monaco Grand Prix aren't that exciting. Well, Reichen a win would have been a great story for the season, wouldn't it? Definitely. So then he obviously made a good start, started building a small lead. I think it rose to just about, uh, just over two seconds. Everything looked like it was going swimmingly well for him. And then suddenly he kind of just started to lose pace. Uh, Vettel closed up a little bit more. Bottas, who was in third, closed up a little bit more. And that's probably where it started to unravel for him. This was the sort of rear tyres going away that he complained of, didn't he? Exactly. As the first pit stop window approached, Red Bulls made their move. Bottas then made his move. And Ferrari decided that they were going to react. Uh, after the race, Ferrari said that it was a predetermined decision to pit around that point. But I think, to answer your question, really, I don't think that it was a Ferrari stitch-up at all. I think, uh, ultimately, Kimi Räikkönen just wasn't quick enough in the periods of time that he needed to be quick. Uh, so when it all shook out and Sebastian Vettel had his small window to make up the time, uh, he did that. And uh, in the end, the position swapped over. Ferrari got the result that it probably wanted, but that doesn't necessarily mean it actively tried to sabotage his race. A lot of analysis has gone into his lack of pace around the pit stops, his lack of pace when they caught the traffic as well. You know, he's moaning on the radio saying, why aren't these guys getting out of the way? And the response from the team was, well, you're not close enough yet. They're not obliged to get out of your way. You've got to get right under their rear wings. Yeah, an opportunity presented itself for Ferrari, I think, once Raikkonen had pitted and Vettel was able to put in those laps. It became all quite convenient, really, rather than particularly predetermined. The one thing I don't understand about the explanation of that was always the lap he was going to pit on, which everybody seemed consistent on, was that Formula One teams have a lot of data on their pit walls and back at the factories. They must have known that he was going to come out behind traffic. Okay, he lost a bit of time of his own doing, but then he lost more time because he, on his outlap and the laps that followed, he had traffic. So that gave Vettel even more of a free pass to sort of steal steal the lead from him. That bit I didn't understand because they didn't really need to react to Bottas. Um, and it just felt a little bit like 
well, maybe it's the Ferrari of old where they're not reactive enough on the pit wall. And maybe actually this time their own driver was a victim of it and they were just lucky that the other guy was in a red car as well. I guess it's no coincidence that the two back markers that are the problem, Verline and Button, were drivers who were a bit out of position. Obviously, they had the first lap problem. So you wouldn't have foreseen in a normal race there to have been cars there. So it's almost like it was unexpected. And that created all sorts of problems. Obviously, when Raikkonen lost time behind them initially in that first stint, that closed everything up a bit. So it made the fact that Red Bulls and Mercedes drivers were pitting a little bit more of a fear in terms of whether they could start trying to attack using an undercut. It feels to me like, I think as you said, Glenn, Ferrari were running the default strategy. If you're in the lead, you stop before your teammate. You wait for a gap to be cleared, and he cleared that gap to Sainz, I think, was in sixth place. Then there was a quite big, it's maybe a nine-second gap, I think, between Sainz and it would have been Ricardo, wouldn't it, in uh, in fifth place. So it's like they, they played the standard paint-by-numbers strategy. It was interesting trying to read Raikkonen's face on the podium. Um, he, he clearly wasn't very happy. You know, Was that a man thinking, have I just been stitched up by my team? Or was he thinking, how did I let that one slip away? Was it a bit of both? It's a it's a genuine mystery for us from the outside. And it's one of those ones we may never actually get an answer to. It'll, it might depend how the season pans out. And if we see more examples of this sort of thing later in the year, we start to wonder, actually, Ferrari are doing this on purpose or not. But it, it um, it's quite rare in Formula 1, I think, to get something where you, you don't get an answer. Because usually we do, don't we? I think uh, on on the note of Kimmy's demeanour, um, he doesn't really show emotion generally. Um, but I think I'd agree with you that on the podium, he just wasn't even trying to to smile for the photos or any, at any point. He he looked gutted. More so, I think he probably would have had the thoughts going through his head: Is this what they've done to me? Have they done this to me? But isn't that an obvious thing to do? It's human nature to think to go through all the scenarios in your head. He probably thought he had the race in the bag when he was speaking afterwards he was talking as if you know he had a good first stint so it wasn't it wasn't as if he felt that he had done a bad job but then it was it's the moment after the race and that's the obvious most obvious thing that you would think about i think the other question this raises for me is um should ferrari be be favoring vettel anyway is that isn't that the best policy for them because they've got a hell of a fight on their hands against mercedes yes they've they've got the upper hand at the moment by looks of it in terms of performance but um beating hamilton over a season in mercedes is mercedes is going to be no mean feat Vettel over the over the course of the year is the most likely one to take the championship. You know, is this a time when they should be getting behind him anyway? Well, if anything, it caused more of a stir because they were denying it if there was something to deny. Whereas actually, over the last couple of years, even last year, there was a couple of times. I think Monaco last year where Mercedes asked Rosberg to get out of the way for Hamilton, and Mercedes was always very open about that. They've been open about it this year. There was, uh, I think, it was Bahrain where Bottas got out of Hamilton's way. And then in Spain, where Bottas' strategy was changed to, to hinder Vettel. So because Mercedes has been upfront about it, and team orders and team tactics, whatever you want to call them, are legal, no one's really got a problem with that. It's almost like Ferrari dug itself a hole by having to explain something because everybody was suspicious. And that actually made it a bit of a bigger deal. And probably the fact it was the Raikkonen factor as well. Kimi Raikkonen's still very popular hasn't won a race for quite a long time now, hasn't always looked great in his second stint at Ferrari. Maybe people were hoping for, as Ed and Lawrence said at the start, a very popular victory. So maybe that just made it all feel a bit more emotional. But I agree with you guys. We talk about Kimi Raikkonen's lack of emotion. I think what we saw from him on the podium was him actually being very emotional uh, for once. And we actually saw almost a human reaction from Kimi Raikkonen for once. I think the one thing we can be very certain of is there were a few little things Raikkonen could have done to reduce the chance of this happening. 
if he'd still had the pace in the first stint, if he got past Verlon and Button the first time a little bit more incisively, if his inlap had been a little bit stronger, all of these things do add up. It was pretty much nip and tuck between him and Vettel in terms of the the pit stop window, and in the end, Vettel emerged a couple of seconds ahead. But it could have swung the other way, just with a few little bits and pieces here and there, if Raikkonen had got going and delivered pace a bit more quickly on the super softs. Admittedly, that didn't look like the easiest thing to do, and Verstappen had the same trouble with it. But that's one of the things you have to look at. Raikkonen's race wasn't perfect, as it were, so it wasn't like he absolutely aced the first stint. I can understand why he's disappointed with it. And you could argue that the fact they allowed Vettel to run longer was a little bit unfair and and they should have stopped at the same time. But at the same time, it was becoming clear that Verstappen was struggling a bit on the tyres at that point. So actually, just because you've made an error with one car doesn't necessarily mean you have to make it with the other. So yeah, it's it's just one of those things. But I I think Ferrari won't be too disappointed with it. I certainly don't think they went out of their way for it not to happen. I imagine that's the interesting question. If it had been the other way round, let's say Vettel had led and made the first stop and then Raikkonen had that window to maybe do an overcut, would they have allowed that to happen? I think that's almost the more pertinent question. That's one, of course, we we can't answer. That would have been a much bigger story as well if they'd had to tinker with it after that. Lewis Hamilton. We haven't talked about him yet. What went wrong there? A qualifying disaster and then a fight back to a reasonable, was he seventh at the end? So a reasonable salvage job, but a pretty horrible weekend for him. It had echoes of Russia. After that Grand Prix, it was, oh, that's just a one-off Grand Prix for Lewis. He has those every, you know, every so often. But to have another one so uh, to follow so quickly is interesting. It just seemed, I think Toto Wolff described the Mercedes as a bit of a diva uh, in terms of they're just struggling uh, with the car. They can't get it into the window for the tyres um, as well this year. And Lewis just seems to be struggling more than uh, than his teammate Bottas. He was asked a question in his press conference on Sunday about whether he can afford to have another weekend like this. And he said something like, oh, well, you know, you're asking that question again. And then Toto chipped and said, oh, you're, you know, yeah, you've had that question again. And you can kind of feel that there's a, he's getting a little bit tetchy about it now. It's, you know, two races out of six uh, that he hasn't really been at the races. Ferrari, he said, have got a better car, uh, which he hasn't been, he hasn't had to say for the last three years. So I think Lewis is starting to feel the pressure and I think it's probably dawning on him that this year it's going to be quite a challenge to win the title. It also means Vettel's got a pretty big championship advantage, hasn't he? Is it 25 points now? I always think a win's worth of advantages is quite a big deal. So I know it's very early, but you're right, there's a, there's a clear fight on, on his hands here. But that, that's the kind of storyline we need, really, isn't it? It's better to have Vettel up front and then Hamilton trying to chase him down maybe than the other way around because then it doesn't feel a bit like the same old from the past few years. Just having two teams fighting for the championship again, I still feel like we're being spoilt just because we had to put up with three years of, of teammates at Mercedes battling. And actually, probably before this weekend, it felt like Hamilton was re-energised by the fact that he had a rival outside of the team. But do you think that a bad weekend, Lawrence, like the one he's just had, has maybe has a shine been taken off of the battle with Vettel for him a little bit? It's very easy to say you're enjoying it when you're beating him. But when you're suddenly looking at the championship game, I'm 25 points behind now. Even if I go on a winning run, he can defend that lead for quite a while. We always assumed that they wouldn't remain best buddies through the season. But is Lewis going to be the one who perhaps stops enjoying this battle first if it carries on like this? I think you're right that when when he made those comments, it was just after he'd won in Spain. So obviously he was on top of the world and he'd bounced back from it. Um, I think that he... He's always said, or he has said so far this season, that they're going to stay friends and that he's kept it very cordial. But I think it's probably turning a little sooner than he would have hoped for. 
Um, and I can see it switching on that. I'm pretty sure he said something like, I don't, I don't want to play psychological wars with Sebastian. Uh, I want to do my talking on track. Um, but I think this weekend we'll have pointed out to him that he might not be able to do that because he simply hasn't got the car in which he's going to be able to do that. And at that point, Lewis is a—he's—he wants to win, so he's going to have to turn to something else at some point if he's going to want to keep winning. Well, sure, surely he's already started because he was the one, you know, saying to the press, "I'm convinced Ferrari are getting behind Vettel." That's that's mixing it up, isn't it? He's he's trying to cause cause problems for for Sebastian, um, and who, none of us want it to stay cordial, do we? I mean, that would be. Driving into each other and arguing and all sorts of controversy. That's, that's what people want to see. Surely it's only a matter of time. Exactly, it will be. And that's what happens. The intensity ramps up and ramps up and ramps up until everything becomes so important. Every little moment on track, every battle becomes so high stakes that eventually people make mistakes or make misjudgments or you get two drivers, neither of which you are willing to compromise. And then suddenly they, they come into contact. And that's why some of the most intense championship fights are defined by that sort of thing. And defined by the bad days as well. You know, we've had a we've had this previous era where perhaps if Rosberg or Hamilton weren't on their game, they might finish second, they might finish third behind a Ferrari or a Red Bull. But you sort of feel like now, because the Mercedes advantage is gone over the rest of the field, the bad days for them can be a seventh place in Monaco. Obviously, Monaco is a special case, but Mercedes will be quite nervous, especially with some more low energy tracks coming up with the softest compounds of tyre, which, as far as I can tell. I think Toto Wolf said at the weekend, it's the really, really softest compounds that they're struggling with the most. So they can probably go to Silverstone or Spa or places like that and they'll be fine. The car will be absolutely rapid on harder tyres that other teams might struggle with. But they've got a run of races coming up where they might have to rely on an engine advantage to bail them out a little bit. And you do feel like it's just refreshing to see that on the bad days, the championship contenders have got a lot more to worry about than which of the lower steps on the podium they're going to uh, end up finishing on. Although we should also add that our current championship leader, his worst day, has been a second. All, which says a lot. All six races, first and second this year, so that that's looking very positive. For that's that. how you build a championship challenge, isn't it? Exactly. I, I'm always very dull and constantly repeat that you win championships on your bad day because your good days are going to be the same as everyone else's, aren't they? A win. You know, you could look at it different ways. If Hamilton wins a championship by a few points, you could say, well, actually, that driver Monaco, when he recovered from the qualifying disaster and picks up a few points, was essential. So it's only when you see the whole sample set of the races that you get a real feel for it. Obviously, there was one interesting subplot as well with Jensen Button's return. This is kind of the, the reverse side of the Fernando Alonso coin. And it all seemed to start quite well. He felt his way in pretty well on Thursday practice rather than Friday. And then on Saturday, he got into Q3, which was... Pretty impressive, even though there's a little bit of good fortune there. But you'd say, yeah, for somebody who didn't necessarily look a great deal like they wanted to be there and hadn't had the best of preparations in terms of not getting any mileage in the car, that was that was pretty good. But then, of course, the race went very wrong and his move led to Verline being parked up against the barrier at, uh, at 90 degrees to his normal orientation to the ground. Uh, what do you make of that, Lawrence? Is it just one of those curious weekends? Do you think Button enjoyed it or was he just going through the motions? What 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 happened? Well, if Jensen wasn't looking forward to the race when he got there, he certainly wasn't when he got the 15-place grid penalty for the edging component change because obviously that meant he was going to start at the back. He was just unfortunate that when he pitted 
uh, on that first lap straight away, Verline did the same thing. So it was just unlucky. And Ver- uh, Sauber only just got Verline out in front of him. With an uh, unsafe release. Exactly. But the penalty that they got really didn't change anything for Jensen, did it? Because it was a five-second penalty and, and didn't change the positions or anything. So Jensen was confined to an afternoon behind a Sauber, which he knew he probably wasn't going to have a car to pass. So then it came to that point at Portier where uh, he, I remember in an interview afterwards, he said, well, what what was I going to do? I needed to have a stab somewhere. So I had a stab and it unfortunately just work, didn't work out. It's very unfortunate that it happened, that the way the contact happened, uh, Verline was pitched onto its side and he slid into the barrier. Uh, that I think that's, you know, hugely unfortunate. But um, it's I, can't, I can see why Jensen had a go. That was the best bit of parking at Monaco by Verline since Ivan Capelli in 92 in the Ferrari, wasn't it, when he managed to park himself on a barrier. So I was always pleased to see that. Obviously, we were watching an Indy on the, on the TV and you saw the first shot you see of this, this, this car inverted in that way. It's like, well, how on earth did that happen? How And obviously, this showed the replay, but it was a, a bizarre incident and a, obviously a very bizarre way for, well, it seems that ben Button's F1 career came to an end at that point. So... Uh, odd way to go out yeah it's an, it's an awful way to go out really i mean you'd hope that over time that race will almost be wiped from his career in terms of people's memory but certainly he didn't quite get to have the send-off at the end of last year that he probably should have because there was all this confusion over what his 2017 deal really was he clearly wanted to leave and mclaren for whatever reason maybe i think they were worried about whether or not they could keep hold of fernando alonso wanted to keep him on their books so he didn't really get to have the Felipe Massa-style send-off at the end of last year. Obviously, Massa came back. I thought it was great to have him back. It was great to see that the performance he had on Saturday. I think he said he really enjoyed Saturday and got to wring the neck of the car a little bit. The thing that troubled me all weekend was that he kept saying, Monaco's not the place to learn the limits of these new cars. And it's really difficult here. If I'd, if I'd driven on a proper circuit, I could have could have gone over the limit, could have run wide in some places and really got a feel for the car. So I don't feel very comfortable yet. I can tell from Damo's giggling that he knows where I'm going with this. Because obviously the, the, the opportunity to test in Bahrain was turned down. And the logic at the time was, oh, it's not relevant to Monaco and all this sort of thing. That's fine. But stay consistent with that when you get to Monaco and you can't push the limits of the car. So I, I wasn't that happy with with that part of the explanation. And I felt that fitted in with the sort of narrative that he probably didn't really want to be there. And in the end, he had to convince himself, it's Monaco, it's kind of cool, I can I can give it a go. I can stop my triathlon training for a couple of weeks. I get the feeling that the decision not to test in Bahrain was more based on, I'm quite happy here in California rather yes. than flying to the Middle East, uh, rather than any particular feeling there wasn't a need to do it. But it, it created a little bit of a story, so it's uh, it's amusing to see him back but it's just going to always be this bizarre postscript i can see us in future years going oh yeah remember when button came back for that for when, that race when he refused to test in bahrain that was the point when mclaren should have um, ended his contract as reserve driver and um put turvey in the car for, for that oliver turvey the other the other um driver on their books who who tested in bahrain um and i know turvey is an unknown driver to the wider world and um the, the, the PR value of having Jensen Button would have made much more sense, especially in Monaco. Despite the fact he qualified in the top ten, it was it was a waste of a seat, really, and a waste of a, a waste of an opportunity. I guess their thinking was that if that had happened, it would have exposed the reserve driver role for Button as a little bit of a sham. Certainly, Jensen doesn't go to races on standby. I think he need he can only be called up on his original deal, sort of a decent chunk before. If a driver gets injured on Friday or gets ill or whatever, he can't just be plugged into the car. 
And I think if you deliberately take a driver out and put them somewhere else, I think that also creates some interesting circumstances. So he certainly needs some persuading. But you can see why McLaren needed it, just from a, the perspective of if you're going to take a big-name driver out of the, the blue-ribbon race of the F1 season, you need to put in an equal standing driver. And although it would have been fascinating to see how someone like Turvey would have done, I think to the wider world that would just look a little bit odd. So you can understand how this situation arose. But it's a shame because it was a missed opportunity because there were there were points there. But yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, Ed, but I, I do think the moment he didn't do that test, that was the, the signal that McLaren should have taken a firmer line with him. I think if they were focused on the racing side, yes. But I think there were other priorities that perhaps should not be the main priorities for a for a racing team at this stage, but there we go. One other point on this is obviously the decision not to go to Monaco from Fernando Alonso looks quite smart if you consider that his car ended up with an engine penalty that put him at the back of the grid. And I don't think Alonso would have made any more progress stuck behind a Sauber in the way that Button was. So in the end, now he now Alonso can look back on that decision with hindsight, which he couldn't do at the time. And I actually thought when the announcement came, I thought it was fantastic he was going to Indy. But I also thought you're passing up your best opportunity of a good result in a McLaren. With hindsight, he can go, well, I got to do the Indy 500, which was brilliant, instead of driving around at the back in Monaco behind a Sauber. Well, I, I kind of asked Alonso that question in the in the press conference on uh, on Sunday after the race, and his response was essentially, you know, the best he could probably hope for at Monaco was was probably a fifth place finish. He's won Monaco. He's been world champion. He's not interested in fifth place finishes. He'd rather he'd rather take a risk and go to Indy and and, and do what he did. So yeah, he did say, you know, I had no regrets. <laughs> no surprise there. I think that's a bit of a concern for McLaren, though, going forward, if Fernando doesn't really care about getting fifth places, because that's really all he's going to be able to be getting this year, and they need a driver who is going to be pushing to the limit. I think it all hinges on what they can convince him they can do. I think he'll live with finishing fifth if he feels it's going somewhere, but that was what last year was about, wasn't it? Picking up the odd sixth place on the basis that they'll be up there, maybe getting the odd podium this year perhaps even getting a win and then the following year be able to fight for the championship. I think that's what it hinges on. In fact, Zach Brown said that a few times that it is all about convincing Alonso. But this was the same in 2015. You know, if we go back and look at the winter of 2014 into 2015, we had that Bahrain test at the end of 14 where we knew the Honda engine was in all kinds of trouble. And go back then and look at the, the roadmap they were plotting then and look at how far adrift they are now. So why should Alonso buy into another two or three years of, of empty promises? He's got to see some tangible reason that it's going to change. And in that regard, doing the Indianapolis 500 makes not one ounce of difference. Absolutely. Because it's all about whether McLaren and Honda, and it is McLaren as well, because while the Honda engine package is the the bigger part of the weakness, I'm still not completely convinced McLaren is the team it once was. It's been a long time since they produced a genuinely outstanding car the 2012 car was the last time because remember in 2013 2014 they had the mercedes engine particularly in 14 the mercedes engine was strong but they were still outperformed by customer teams so he needs to see on both sides that there's some progress and i think he quite he seems to quite like the ambience at mclaren but he needs to be able to to win races and go for championships and how long is he going to hang on they sort of talked about waiting until after the the breaks sort or of september october time but it could all be changed if there's a top team out there that could offer Alonso a drive. That will transform the whole equation. Of course, whether there is or not is a, is a big question. So that's something that will play out over the over the next few months. That's another podcast, isn't it? Well, exactly. Yeah, that's not one to uh, not one to get into now. 
No, we've ended up back where we started as well, talking about Fernando Alonso. He we does thought that, we were he? done with him. I know, you can't get away from the subject. It's amazing. All the Ed Jones fans are furious that he's not being talked about at this stage. Uh, well, anyway, thanks very much for joining me, Glenn, Damien and Lawrence. Subscribe to the podcast, free via iTunes and various other podcast apps. Check out autosport.com for all the news and features. Autosport magazine, uh, out every Thursday. We'll have an in-depth Monaco report, an in-depth Indy 500 report, a big article having a look at Fernando Alonso's progress at Indy. Obviously, F1 Racing as well, where Damien wrote a a piece that's obviously almost as good as my one in Autosport. Nowhere near. Nowhere near. (laughs) About Alonso's progress there. So plenty to read and Just copy and pasted yours, actually, so... Oh dear. You don't mind that, do you? As long as it was given a very good sub. All sorts of words that are meant to be in there will probably, probably been there. I would also say, please check out some of the previous podcasts. We recorded a few special ones when we were in Indianapolis with Mario Andretti and with Rick Mears, which was, uh, was great fun and very insightful. So check back for those. So thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This is it. This is the year. Enough dreaming about growing my business online. It's time to get serious about selling in my style, as big as I want to grow, because there's nothing I can't do. It's time to get Shopify and take my business to the next level. Whoa, someone's ready to take on the new year. Oh, oh, I thought I was talking to myself there. But heck yeah, 2023 is my year. That's not your average resolution. That's a revolution. It's It's a a new New year's Year's revolution. Start selling with Shopify to join the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand. From templates that make site design simple to customizations that let you grow at your pace, this is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free22. That's shopify.com slash free22. Go to shopify.com to start your New Year's revolution today. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.